to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Patrick Henry Jones is no longer a well-known figure in American history, but he was at one time colonel of the 154th New York during the war and New York City's civil servant and political figure afterward. He represented the possibilities and perils that faced Irish immigrants to the United States. In taking command of the 154th New York, he also came into the sights of our guest tonight, Mark Dunkelman, author of several books on the regiment. We'll learn more from Mark Dunkelman about Patrick Henry Jones, Irish-American, Civil War general, and Gilded Age politician, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, home of the Pirates and the Marching Pirates, but not speaking for any of those organizations, speaking just for myself, because it's important one speaks for oneself, not for others. So I'll be doing just that tonight, and likewise my guest will do the same. It has been an active week here in Greenville, as all kinds of things have been happening Uh on the outside, there's a hurricane bearing down on us. It's uh, the first, is this the first show? Yes, of October 2016, and we're all waiting to see if Hurricane Matthew shows up or not this weekend. We hope not, obviously. There are things to do. Tomorrow, I'm taking students in History 3225 on a field trip to the New Bern Battlefield Park, which is a very small but nicely Uh, maintained battlefield site with some earthworks that are beautifully preserved and looking forward to getting the students out and walking around a little bit, hoping we're not trudging through a hurricane. We'll we'll see about that. Uh, 
ECU has been uh, in the national news with the actions of some marching band members last week at the football game, uh, indicating a political protest by not playing the national anthem. And our chancellor responded to that with what seemed to me a very even-handed message, but there were a lot of people in Pirate Nation who thought he should have drawn and quartered the protesters, and they weren't happy with him for that. Uh, I had, think I said on this show that at the beginning of the semester, our brand new chancellor had talked about how we should encourage our students, if they protest, to be civil about it. So sure enough, Saturday's protest was exceedingly civil, uh, silent and motionless, in fact, but it did not stop the uh, outbreak of, of outrage that followed and then outrage at the chancellor for not being outraged enough and then counter-outrage at some administrators who were outraged. And so there's just outrage flowing in all directions now around campus as we try to deal with this. My own view, I'm glad you asked, is uh, I certainly support students' right to protest and express themselves, but it seems to me analogous to the public history situation. When you work in a uh, university and write a book about history, you can say anything you want, you take the blame, you get the credit, you rise or fall, your freedom of speech is, is really unlimited. But if you work in a museum, you can't direct the exhibit any way you want because you're not speaking with your own voice. It's the museum people are coming to see, the artifacts, the institution. And as a public historian, you are to some extent bound to recognize the imperatives of the institution you work for. And if you don't agree with them, you can leave, but you can't simply be a soloist when you're on a team like that. And likewise, I think a football player who took a knee on first down, not during the national anthem, as a protest, and thus cost his team uh, yardage, maybe cost him the game, that would be problematic. So uh, I'm not sure about protesting when you're on the team, on the field with the band, but there are many opinions, and uh, the outrage will continue to flow freely, I'm sure, over the next few weeks. Here at Civil War uh, Talk Radio World Headquarters, I will say I'm running on fumes as we approach the last week of the first half of the semester. This weekend is beginning of fall break. Fall break is the country cousin of spring break. Fall break is only two days long. It's not really a vacation. Most of us don't go anywhere. But it's two days off from class to catch your breath, get your notes in order, gear up for the second half of the semester. And I, it's never been more welcome. We've been uh, uh, monitoring all kinds of issues for the last uh, six, seven weeks, and it, it's time for a break. So looking forward to that. No break for Civil War Talk Radio, though. We will be back next Wednesday. Deborah Redden Van Tyle is author of The Confederate Press and the Crucible of the American Civil War. We'll talk with her about Confederate journalism. On October 19th, James Hofstadt will discuss Brigadier General Martin Davis Hardin, Lincoln's bold lion is what he calls him. On the 26th, we've got the, the topic is Morgan's raid into Ohio. David Mowry is the author. That was a listener's suggestion, and I'm always happy to get your suggestions. You hear the address read out every week, so you can spell my name in your sleep by now. There's no G in my last name, by the way. That's the first initial. That's how the email addresses work. But I often get email addressed to me with a G at the end of the name. That would be unpronounceable. Uh, 
And then on November 2nd, after uh, David Mowry with Morgan's Raid on the 26th, November 2nd, Vicki Bynum, author of The Long Shadow of the Civil War, will be with us. But I'm going to ask her about The Free State of Jones, her previous book. I asked her about it last time she was on the show, many years ago. Now it's a movie. I'm going to find out what it's like to be famous in Hollywood. You can help make Civil War Talk Radio famous in Hollywood by buying books through our website, Go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and click on the Amazon link there to the various books we discuss on the show, and that click-through helps out the website. And you can also donate to Civil War Talk Radio at civilwartr at aol.com. And uh, I once again, will recommend if you enjoy the show, if you think it's worth a few dollars monthly for the hours of uh, talk with interesting guests, please uh, consider a recurring donation. Put down a few dollars a month through PayPal, then you don't have to think about it ever again. But each time you do, you'll be filled with a warm glow of satisfaction that you are helping keep Civil War Talk Radio rolling along. You will not feel a warm glow of satisfaction if you deduct it on your taxes because you'll be breaking the law. Don't do that. It's not tax deductible. It's just for me. It's just or whatever I want to do. Well, what I want to do tonight is talk with our guest, Mark Dunkelman. He is an old friend of the show. He has been on more than once in the past. Uh, he is knows more about the 154th New York Infantry Regiment than I would say anyone knows about any other regiment in the Civil War. That's a big claim to make, but I think others would be hard put to challenge it. And he has written a new book about Patrick Henry Jones, who was colonel of the regiment, but also had a lot of other things going for him. And we'll talk about those other things as well tonight. Mark, are you there? Good evening, Jerry. Hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. How's things with you? Good. Good Good to hear from you again. I'm glad we got to get connected here. Um, before we start talking about Patrick Henry Jones, I want to get up to date on uh, news about the 154th. You have a, a, a wonderful email newsletter that goes out to a lot of people. I get that and read it with interest. What's uh, well? Looking at the newsletter, it looks like last time you were in Gettysburg, you were involved with the, the mural on Coster Avenue. Can you bring us up to date on that? I'd be happy to. Um... I happened to be visiting Gettysburg in April of 1970, and uh, I always go to Coster Avenue, which is the site of the monument of the 154th New York, the regiment that I base my work on. And on that particular visit, I noticed that uh, the roofing company that owns the property uh, adjacent to Coster Avenue was putting an extension on their building, concrete block wall. It was going to be 10 feet behind the monument of the 154th New York. And I got to thinking about this, uh, what an ugly backdrop it was going to be to the monument. But then I realized that I could put my Bachelor of Fine Arts from the Rhode Island School of Design, my Uh artistic training, to work and create a mural that would depict the scene that occurred on that very site on July 1st, 1863. And so after years of work, I got permission from the uh, building's owner to to put the mural up on their building. I met an artist in Rhode Island, Johann Bierman, who had worked large scale in mural work and billboard work, very excellent artist, 
who agreed to collaborate with me on the final project, and I developed over a period of time a one-inch-to-a-foot scale pencil sketch that I had folks like Kathy George Harrison, who was a historian at the military park, Bill Frazzanito of Civil War photography fame, and the late Colonel J. Met Sheeds, uh, who is very well remembered in Gettysburg as a high school history teacher and an authority on the battle. I believe that he gave JFK a tour of the battlefield when Kennedy visited it. So these folks critiqued my sketches, and we finally, I finally came up with a sketch that everybody was uh, satisfied with. And Johan and I proceeded to do the painting. We did it here in Rhode Island on panels, which we then trucked down to Gettysburg and installed. And uh, we had a dedication ceremony on July 1st, 1988, which was the 125th anniversary of the battle. And the painting depicts the climactic moment of the fight between Coster's Union Brigade, which was posted in John Kuhn's brickyard on the northeastern outskirts of Gettysburg. And they were overwhelmed by the two Confederate brigades of Harry Hayes and Isaac Avery, uh, which outnumbered the Yankees approximately three to one and sent reeling. They were attempting to cover the retreat of the 11th Army Corps from the plains north of town. And so the mural depicts, uh, as one of the Confederates put it, the Yankees held stubbornly until we jumped the fence into their midst. So that's the moment of the battle that I chose to portray. And the mural held up really well after that 1988 installation for about seven or eight years. But then Mother Nature started to get her hooks into it. And Johan and I had put two coats of marine spar varnish on it, but the varnish started to alligator and chip off. And by the year 2000, the mural was in really bad, bad shape. But then I had the very good fortune to meet the legendary Edwin C. Bars. Wow. And Ed told me to my great pleasure and pride that he had never taken tours by Coster Avenue until the mural went up because there was no way to interpret the battle there. The the town of Gettysburg had grown and and hemmed in Coster Avenue, which is a portion of the Gettysburg National Military Park, the smallest portion. It's only three quarters of an acre. Hmm. And Ed told me, since the painting is up, I take people there all the time. And I said to Ed, well, then you know that the mural's in really rough shape and I've been trying to raise some money to restore it. And he said, I might be able to help you out. It turns out that a group of Ed's followers, they call themselves the Bars Brigade, get together every June to celebrate Ed's birthday in Northern Virginia. And they, as part of the celebration, they make a sizable charitable donation to the Civil War preservation cause of Ed's choice. And so in 2001, I got an email from a member of the Bars Brigade asking me if I could go down to Falls Church, Virginia in that June and uh, help celebrate Ed's birthday. And I did, and they handed me a check, uh, uh, an envelope, rather, full of checks. And that funded the restoration. Johan and I went down there right after September 11th, the last week in September, first week in October 2001, and we scraped the old varnish off of the mural, repainted every square inch. 
Well, a number of years passed, and the same thing happened over again. Painting started to deteriorate, and then there were some structural issues as well. And Johan and I were looking at going down there and doing the work for a third time, knowing mm-hmm. that, you know, after another period of years would elapse, we'd have to do it over again. And so I started to cast about for a different method to somehow reproduce this painting that would be uh, longer lasting. And a friend of my wife's happened, that I happened to tell my quandary to, asked me, have you thought about doing it on glass? And I hadn't. But I contacted a local glass firm here in Rhode Island, uh, Lucid Glass Studio, and they told me about this technique of printing on glass using ceramic inks, which then the glass goes through two heat treatments like kiln or oven type of things that literally fuse those ceramic inks right to the glass. And it's an outfit called Standard Bent Glass in uh, East Butler, PA, that does this work. And Mark, so we're going to have to take a short break, come back and find out how the glass worked out. Our interest has peaked, but we're going to take a quick break away, come right back and talk more with our guest, Mark Dunkelman, author of Patrick Henry Jones, Irish-American, Civil War general, Gilded Age politician. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Mark H. Dunkelman, author of Patrick Henry Jones, Irish-American, Civil War general, and Gilded Age politician. 
But we were talking in the first segment about Mark's mural at Gettysburg on Coster Avenue portraying the action of the 154th New York, the regiment that Patrick Henry Jones led uh, through much of the war. And uh, uh, this, this wonderful mural that has several times battled the elements, deteriorated, been restored. And Mark, you, you came up with the idea of uh, painting, or painting's not the right word, somehow reproducing it on glass to protect it indefinitely. Did that work, and how is it looking today? It did work. It came out very nice. Uh, it was installed last year, just about a year ago. And I was there a few weeks ago to see it for the first time uh, since, and it's held up beautifully. And that's me knocking my wooden desk. It's going <laughs> to stay that way, you know, for uh, the rest of my lifetime, I'm hoping. Longevity was what I was looking for, and that seems to be uh, the result. So I'm, I'm very pleased with it. Have you ever been to Coster Avenue, Jerry? I, I have. I'm trying to recall what state. I, I, I'm trying to visualize the mural I, I'm, what I'm seeing in my mind's eye are the photographs of it uh, I'm not getting a personal memory picture going yeah it's been uh, illustrated in a, in a battlefield guidebook I believe at some point right now in your newsletter you point out while you were in Gettysburg you, you came across the, uh, the, the new infamous uh, institution Civil War Tales the Civil War interpreted with tiny statues of cats. I've been, I've been thinking about having those folks on the show, but I'm not sure I could do a whole hour of talking about tiny cats. Did you actually get to go in, or did you just peek through the window? I did not. It was closed. Um, ah, too bad. When I was down there to take down the old mural and watch the new one installed a year ago, I went by there several times. It was always closed, even during their announced hours of operation. So I don't know what's going on with that place. Well, let me ask about a more serious institution. What's happening with the uh, the hall in your home county? Uh, there, there was a long-term preservation effort, and here I'm violating the lawyer's rule not to ask a question you don't know the answer to. I really don't know what the current status is. Uh, yeah, I didn't report on my latest in my latest hardtack regiment news email newsletter uh, because the status right at the moment is sort of very uncertain. Uh, We're talking about the Cattaraugus County Memorial and Historical Building in Little Mm -hmm. Valley, New York, which is the county seat. It was dedicated by, in 1914, to the soldiers and sailors in the War of the Rebellion from Cattaraugus County. About 200 Civil War veterans were on hand during the dedication. It housed the County Historical Museum until 2004, when the museum was moved to a town 23 miles away. Sat vacant since then, and in 2013, the county legislator voted to use 125 grand in casino funds to tear it down. And I put the word out to the, my extensive mailing list of 154th New York descendants and friends, and uh, the legislators were apparently inundated with emails protesting this planned action. And a group eventually was formed, CAMP, standing for Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation. And CAMP has been fighting to attempt to preserve and restore and reuse this memorial. And the county 
initially and for quite a long time said that uh, there was uh, legal issues preventing them from turning the memorial over to any outside entity. But now they appear to have reneged on that stance and are talking about uh, putting it into Camp's hands. Hmm. So at the moment, everything is sort of in limbo, and we're waiting to see what's going to happen. Uh, Camp has got the support of the uh, Landmark Society of Western New York, which named the property one of their five to revive this past year, and, uh, you know, been dealing with other preservation groups. Uh, the Civil War Trust has sent us a, a letter of support. Um, veterans groups have voiced support. So we're hoping we can save this place. Uh, it looks now like we are going to be able to, but then what's going to happen to it is the big question. So there's still a lot of issues to be uh, ironed out with the whole situation. Well, well best of luck with that. Uh, I'll keep an eye on the 154th newsletter. And uh, Is there a, a website or any place where listeners could go if they want to find out what's happening with that? Absolutely. They have an excellent website, the URL of which I can't just roll off the tip of my tongue. But if folks visit my website, which is hardtackregiment.com, there's a link to the camp website there, and they can follow that. Very good. So let's talk about Patrick Henry Jones, who commanded the 154th uh, through uh, part of its wartime service. He is... Uh, an interesting character, as you note in the book, at one time quite well-known, but largely forgotten today. Is this biography an outgrowth of your other work on the 154th? Is this sort of the, the capstone to uh, telling the regiment's story, to tell the story of its commanding officer? Yeah, it certainly is. I've Since my earliest work uh, researching the regiment, I always thought there was a story to Colonel Jones, General Jones. Uh, but it wasn't until we held uh, one of our annual descendants reunions several years ago in Ellicottville, which was his adopted hometown, and I devoted the program to commemorate him, that I started to do some more in-depth research and turned, started to turn up a lot, particularly about his post-war political career that really intrigued me. And I decided that there was a full-length biography there. And so I pursued it, and I really think that he's a fascinating character in that he was one of the best-known Irish-Americans of his day, but as you point out, he's, he's been virtually forgotten. And he was an honorable man who ran into some difficulties and wound up diminished, and I think that it's a really sad story. It's a rags-to-riches-to-rags story. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it, story it, of a it, it, rise and fall. Initially, I wanted to call the the book "The Perils of Prominence," uh, which I think sort of sums up uh, his story to an extent. Well, it it is uh, it, it's a very interesting story, and the trajectory you describe really uh, catches the reader. We'll, we'll hold on to his tragic fall till the next segment, but let's talk about his uh, his rise as as an Irish American. He was unusual in supporting the Republican Party before the, the Civil War. Did that affect his, his wartime prospects? Well, actually, he went into the war as a Democrat, as most Irish Americans were. 
Okay. The Democrats were the party that welcomed the two major right. immigrant groups of the day, the Germans and the Irish. So Jones followed that, and uh, he converted during the war. And right. in particular, it was pointed out in the election of 1862 when Horatio Seymour was the Democratic candidate for governor of New York and ran against General James Wadsworth. And Jones came out in support in the in the Cattaraugus County Press in support of Wadsworth. That that displayed that he had switched allegiance. And of course, the Republicans were the the party supporting the administration. Uh, the Democrats, in essence, became the anti-war party. So it was natural for the soldiers to gravitate to the Republicans. And it's also yeah. worth pointing out that at the time, the representative from the district that Cattaraugus and Chautauqua counties uh, were part of was Reuben Fenton, who ran for governor of New York State in 1864, and Jones supported him then, and he became very important political ally of Jones. Uh, Fenton eventually became senator from New York State, too. So, so yeah, Jones is traveling in pretty high circles already. Uh, already, yeah. And Fenton was instrumental in advocating that Jones be promoted a brigadier general, which occurred toward the end of the war. One of the things I thought was really interesting about this was the interplay of, of ethnicity. And you point out, for example, that when Jones starts out in the war, he's with uh, two counties of uh, troops who are, are then mixed with eight other, two, two companies of troops, I should say, uh, from Western New York, who get mixed mm -hmm. in with eight from New York City in the thirty seventh New York. Mm -hmm. So they have there's some ethnic similarity, but the two groups don't get along. Exactly, and those eight companies from New York City were Irish. Mm -hmm. So here's Jones, a native Irishman, all of a sudden tossed into this regiment of his countrymen. Unfortunately. The 37th was led by Colonel John McCoon, who was the sort of the epitome of the maladroit political officer in the Civil War. He was eventually cashiered from the Army. So Jones had a terrible role model with him, but he also had the good fortune to eventually uh, have Colonel Sam Heyman take over the 37th, which was known as the Irish Rifles. And when Heyman took command, Jones, who had been a second lieutenant, was quickly promoted to first lieutenant and adjutant, and then subsequently to major of the 37th. So obviously, Heyman, a West Point-trained officer, saw potential in Jones, and Jones was an ambitious guy, and obviously bright and uh, a quick learner. And he picked up, and by the time the 154th New York was formed in western New York in the summer of 1862, Jones was a pretty logical choice to be commissioned colonel of the regiment, which he was. Now, the regiment, as you point out, had the good fortune not to uh, get engaged at Antietam or Fredericksburg, mm -hmm. but they do serve at, they, they do engage in the battle at Chancellorsville, and by this time they are assigned to the 11th Corps, and Many of our listeners understand immediately if you're in the 11th Corps at Chancellorsville, that means you're 
in the immediate path of Stonewall Jackson's flank attack. How did the 154th and, and Jones do in that battle? Well, they were part of Colonel Adolphus Bushbeck's brigade, uh, which formed the today fairly well-known Bushbeck line, which was the last line of resistance of the 11th Corps. And the 154th took 590 men into the battle and lost 240 of them. That's a 40% loss casualty rate. And one of the wounded and captured was Colonel Jones. He was held by the enemy for a couple of weeks. Uh, he reported that he was treated very well by the Confederates. Uh, his wound was in the hip, which led him to uh, a lengthy rehabilitation. He was away from the regiment and consequently missed the Battle of Gettysburg and didn't rejoin them until the day before the Battle of Chattanooga, at which point the 11th and 12th Corps had been transferred to the Western Theater and took part at the Chattanooga Battle. And after winter in Lookout Valley, uh, took part in the Atlanta campaign with the now 20th Corps, formed by the merging of the 11th and 12th. And four days into the Atlanta campaign, he was injured at the Battle of Doug Gap on Rocky Face Ridge, Georgia, again sent to the rear, rehabilitated, came back and took command of the brigade, Colonel Adolphus Bushbeck and his regiment, the 27th Pennsylvania, having their term up and gone home. So Jones led... Uh, the 2nd Brigade, 2nd Division, 20th Corps, through the rest of the Atlanta campaign, the largest battle being Peachtree Creek, uh, was there at the fall of Atlanta, led the brigades on Sherman's march to the sea. But by then, he was troubled by chronic diarrhea, and he was sent north. Uh, I should also mention that with the 37th during the Peninsula campaign, he contracted malaria. So... In addition to his wounds, he suffered physical ailments, uh, and that troubled him for the rest of his life. So he missed most of the campaign of the Carolinas, but rejoined Sherman's army uh, in North Carolina shortly before Johnson's surrender, and then, of course, had what must have been a very proud moment, leading his brigade in the grand review of Sherman's army at the end of the war in Washington. Now, much of the time when he was leading the brigade, he was he was the senior colonel. The brigade is supposed to have a brigadier general, but if there isn't one, the senior mm-hmm. regimental leader takes charge. Mm-hmm. When, when did he get promoted to brigadier general? Uh, his promotion, he, his commission was in April of 1865. It was dated to December 6th, 1864, but he didn't receive it until May of 1865. So it sort of so, chased him all around the South, trying to catch up to him. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And, and that seems like one of the uh, sort of motifs in, in Jones's life is not quite getting the things that are due to him in some cases. Uh, but he did get to lead the, the brigade in the, the Grand Review. So when the war ends, his prospects must look pretty good. His prospects were good, and he had also outgrown Little Ellicottville, New York, uh, and that fall he was nominated on the Republican ticket as Clerk of the Court of Appeals for the state of New York, that being the highest court in the country, I mean in the state, rather, and uh, he was, together with the rest of the Republican ticket, elected. So he went to Albany. Uh, He traveled the state because the court was a 
traveling court as well. And he wound up spending a lot of time in New York City. And then Governor Fenton had to replace Charles Helpine as register of the city and county of New York. The reason he had to replace Charles Helpine was because Helpine died of probably alcoholism and perhaps a drug overdose. Charles Helpine was an interesting character uh, in his own right. He's best known as Private Miles O'Reilly, who wrote a lot of uh, poetry and prose uh, in the voice of an Irish common soldier. And there's an excellent uh, biography called Irish by William Hanchat, who's known as a Lincoln and Lincoln assassination scholar. Um, So anyway, when Halpine died, Fenton had to replace him. And Phil Sheridan and other people urged Fenton to appoint somebody to the office who would donate the proceeds to Halpine's widow and children. And Jones agreed to do that. And that gained him a tremendous amount of sympathy and admiration, not only in the Irish-American community, but among the population in general in New York City. It's interesting that the Register of New York City took in the fees that were paid when somebody registered a deed or other transactions and reportedly was the highest paid public official in America. Wow. The Register in New York City was making more than the President of the United States. Well, that's, that's the way to do your, your civil service when you can. We're going to take another short break. We're going to come right back, talk more about the post-war career of Patrick Henry Jones, Irish-American, Civil War general, and Gilded Age politician. That's with our guest tonight, Mark Dunkelman. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet Talk Radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Mark Dunkelman about his new book, Patrick Henry Jones, Irish-American, Civil War General, and Gilded Age Politician. As we were talking during the last segment, an alert listener and a descendant of uh, a member of the 154th uh, sends an email letting us know that the camp website for the, uh, the preservation group preserving the hall in Cattaraugus County uh, can be found at Catco Memorial, C-A-T-T-C-O, memorial.com, Catco for Cattaraugus County. So if you're interested in following the progress of this long-running preservation battle in western New York, catcomemorial.com is a place to do it, plus, of course, Hardtack Regiment. Uh, is that .com or .org, Mark? .com. Uh, .com. Uh, hardtechregiment.com, where you follow what's happening with the 154th. So we've been talking about Patrick Henry Jones, Colonel and later Brigadier General, and after the war, Register of New York City, raking in the fees as every deed that's registered costs money. The register gets a cut. Uh, so a great thing for him to take that job and donate the proceeds to uh, the widow of the former office holder. And again, that would seem to set him up with his wartime service and this unselfish act uh, to become uh, extraordinarily prominent. And he does, in fact, become postmaster of New York, which has to be another lucrative civil service post. How did that work out for him? Well, that's that's an interesting question right there. He was appointed by <laughs> President Grant, postmaster of New York City, which is lucrative to an extent. There was a substantial salary involved, but primarily it was one of the plum patronage jobs. Mm. Uh, so Jones could really wield power uh, for his fellow Republicans in that job. And he served during Grant's first term, but then he resigned. And as he later revealed in press interviews, one of the reasons he resigned was because of a scandal that took place during his term in office, in which the head of the money order department, one John Norton, had embezzled $115,000. That's a lot of money in 1871 dollars. That's a tremendous amount of money. I couldn't extrapolate it to present-day dollars, but it's a lot of money. And Jones discovered the uh, discrepancy in the books, and Norton was apprehended. It turned out that he had an estate in New Jersey with fine horses, and that was confiscated. And Jones had bondsmen uh, that had put up sureties worth $1 million. One of them was another of Jones's political backers, Horace Greeley. But it's a complex case. What happened eventually was that the bondsmen never really covered the losses. Jones was legally responsible for them. Eventually, he had to pay thousands of dollars to reimburse the government for this defalcation. And according to his wife, the the Norton embezzlement broke him financially. He and his wife wound up living in very poor circumstances on Staten Island. 
uh, a long way from his days of dinners at Delmonico's and being on the rostrum at the uh, Cooper Institute and hobnobbing with President Grant at a, Grant's Long Branch, New Jersey, summer White House. So, um... Uh, he, didn't, the, he didn't do anything wrong. He was just... His position made liable. him responsible. Yeah, okay. yeah. And so. Norton, you know, pretty much escaped. I don't think he ever did prison time. I forget exactly. Uh, I, I told that story in, in detail in a chapter in my book. Um, but there was a subsequent issue that I think was really the situation that broke Jones, and that was the A.T. Stewart grave robbery. A.T. Stewart is not known, I would guess, to many of our listeners, but uh, Stewart's was, was Macy's before there was Macy's. It was the first great department store. That's exactly right. And A.T. Stewart was really a pioneer in, in uh, retail sales. And his store, he had two stores, actually, that covered entire city blocks on Broadway in Manhattan, uh, or a wholesale and a retail sh- store. The retail store was so well-known to New Yorkers that there wasn't even a sign outside of it. A.T. Stewart, when he died, was the third wealthiest person in the United States. He, incidentally, was another Irish immigrant. Hmm. Uh, after Vanderbilt and Astor, A.T. Stewart. And one of his, his uh, projects, Stewart, was the development of Garden City out on Long Island. It was a planned commuter com- community, in essence, suburban community. And the Cathedral of the Incarnation there was under construction and was housing a crypt that Stuart was to be buried in, but Stuart predeceased the completion of the cathedral, and they had to put him somewhere, and he was buried in a crypt in St. Mark's Churchyard at the corner of 10th Street and 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. And on one dark and stormy night in November (laughs) 1878, thieves broke into the graveyard and stole A.T. Stewart's corpse. It was one of the most sensational crimes of the 1870s. It was the first kidnapping for ransom in American history. And of course, Stewart being a household name, it generated a tremendous amount of publicity. And for weeks, there were stories in the papers uh, following the police, following various leads, all of which pretty much turned out to be red herrings. And it wasn't until the following year that the story again hit the papers when it was revealed that a representative of the thieves named Henry Romaine had sent a letter to Patrick Henry Jones and contacted Jones uh, and hired him, in essence, as lawyer to negotiate the return of Stewart's remains with his widow, his childless widow, Cornelia Stewart. And when this, when this story hit the papers, it created another sensation. And eventually, the entire Jones-Romaine correspondence was published in the newspapers, and it became another big to-do. Well, let me uh, ask you about that, because when 
when the thieves contacted Jones, in the book you describe how they send a letter, he opens the letter, a $100 bill falls out, mm-hmm. and he reads the letter and it says, we are the people who stole Stewart's body and we want to hire you. We've given yep. you a retainer. You're now our lawyer and you're bound by lawyer-client privilege. Now, Jones does the right thing and takes all this stuff right to the police. He does indeed. So and in, addition, he, in addition to the letter, Romaine sent proofs. Yes. One of them, the coffin plate, taken, wrenched from uh, Stewart's coffin. So it was. So they, yeah, they know they're dealing with the real bad guys here. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And as you said, Jones immediately and always dealt with the authorities. Unfortunately, he also had to deal with Henry Hilton, who was an unsavory character who had insinuated himself into the good graces of Alexander T. Stewart and Cornelia, his wife, and become, became sort of a surrogate son to them. And eventually he wound up, in essence, sort of taking control over their lives and, and the Stewart business after A.T. Stewart died. And he and Jones did not have a good relationship, needless to say. He cast a lot of doubts. He, he basically insinuated that Jones was in cahoots with the thieves. And a lot of other people, no doubt, believed this as well. It put Jones in a really, really terrible position to be representing uh, these ghouls. Grave robbery was considered one of the most dastardly and, and dirty crimes imaginable. And here Jones was mixed up with these people, with his motives in question. And I found a really tremendous quote in the New York Herald by an unidentified gentleman who was familiar with the case and the uh, main participants. And he, he said something like this, that Nothing came of the Jones-Romaine correspondence except the ruin of poor Jones. He was never the same afterwards. And I just sort of got that sense from the chronology where, you know, he had been leading a public life of prominence. And then after the A.T. Stewart grave robbery, it just, the wheels fell off for him. He now, moved could to he... Staten Island. He moved out of the public eye. And he and apparently his wife descended into apparently a, a spiral of alcoholism. What I wondered as I was reading this was, was could he have not, I mean, it seems like he, he agrees, okay, I'm your lawyer, just because you say I'm your lawyer and you sent me some money, so I guess I'm bound now. But he didn't. He did go to the police, which if, if you were actually hired by somebody as a lawyer, you wouldn't be able to do that. So at first he doesn't feel bound. He he goes ahead and tells the police, "I've got these criminals contacting me," and they say, "Go ahead and talk to him." Right. Uh, uh, you know that the police tell him, "Go ahead and correspond. Let's see if we can find these guys." He does what the police want him to do. He's doing everything right. Mm-hmm. But at some point he crosses this line where he begins to identify with. He really is the rep, the, the the hired lawyer of these bad guys, and it it was hard to tell what when that happened or what made it happen, but but it's certainly a tragic story because the consequences for him are terrible. They were terrible. And it's what fascinates me is, uh, and incidentally, there's been two uh, separate books written about the A.T. Stewart grave robbery. Um, 
it's a fascinating case in that there's only one resolution that was presented. Years later, the superintendent of police, the chief, George Walling, wrote a memoir. It's a big, big, thick book about all the cases that he oversaw during his years as a police, police chief. And one of them, of course, was the A.T. Stewart grave robbery. And according to Walling, eventually Jones did, after the spate of publicity about the failed negotiations that he took part in, according to Walling, eventually Jones did broker a deal for the return of the remains. And the price had been greatly reduced to $20,000. A relative of Mrs. Stewart, following instructions, took, took the uh, money to a deserted spot in Westchester County where he met some masked men who handed him a bag of bones in exchange for the money. So if you believe Walling's story, Stewart's remains do indeed lie in the crypt in the Cathedral of the Incarnation in, New York, uh, in Garden City. For some reason, uh, a number of analysts of the case tend to doubt Walling's account. I don't know why. I see no reason to, to doubt it. But I think there's a lot of loose ends that have yet to be tied up in the A.T. Stewart grave robbery and its, uh, its eventual um, denouement. Wow. Well, it's a fascinating story and, and uh, an unexpected end to the, the story of a Civil War hero who ends up uh, engaged in negotiating with grave robbers and, and losing his public reputation and his fortune and his health and eventually his life. Uh, so, spoiler alert, if you're going to read the book, that's uh, Jones has not come to a good end. But it's a very uh, well-told and entertaining story of a figure who, again, is largely forgotten today. Uh, Mark, we have 15 seconds. Do you have uh, another book in the works? No, Jerry. It's all about the music for me now. Excellent. And you, you perform and you, you write songs? Yeah, I've got a band called Clip Clop, and uh, we've been rehearsing for about two and a half years, and I'm looking forward to playing out very soon. We're doing all my original compositions. I play pedal steel, guitar, and dobro doing the singing. I've got uh, Sarah Kelly with me on guitar, Scott Stenhouse guitar, Paige Stites on stand-up bass. We're an old-fashioned string band. No drums. We're a very quiet band. Well, that sounds great. Well, so listeners, if Clip Clop comes to your neighborhood, you know who you're listening to. In the meantime, you'll want to read Patrick Henry Jones, Irish-American, Civil War general, and Gilded Age politician by our guest tonight, Mark Dunkelman. Mark, thanks again for being on the show. Jerry, I enjoyed it as usual. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.